Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. You may have noticed, in fact, it's very hard not to have noticed that fire is in the news. Uh, the West is burning up and fire is suddenly a problem in parts of the world where we hadn't anticipated it before. Siberia, Greece, along the Mediterranean, Australia, of course, often uh, a subject of fire. Uh, we're going to take a look at fire, how to control it, and why we're getting so much of it today with two exceptional guests. They are Morgan Varner, Director of Research, and Kevin Hires, Director of Fire Science Applications at Tall Timbers, which is an organization headquartered in Tallahassee, Florida, and which is the center of knowledge, expertise, and study of controlled burning, often in the fire world known as prescribed burning. Uh, I welcome these two extraordinary gentlemen. Good morning, uh, Kevin. Would you like to start us off by telling us what you do in your job? Good morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come and talk about prescribed fire. I've spent more than 25 years at the interface of fire science and uh, fire management, largely uh, with the United States Air Force. Uh, at one of the nation's largest prescribed fire programs, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And I've dedicated my uh, career to really supplying the technological underpinnings for prescribed fire managers to be safe and effective in their utilization of fire to both fight fire and manage for conservation objectives across the landscape. Um, and Morgan Varner, Director of Research at Tall Timbers, Thank you, Llewellyn, and looking forward to this conversation today. Um, I am the Director of Research at Tall Timbers. We are an organization focused on uh, conservation of biodiversity and um, approaching that from uh, multiple science directions to look at both how fires behave, how they interact with plant communities, and how they interact with um, what are usually threatened in rare species in other areas, but in fire-prone environments tend to be quite common. Now, some people are alarmed to learn that your prescription for the fire uh, uh, epidemic is in fact starting fires, controlled fires, fires that do what you want them to do, do it quickly, burn up all the fuel. Is that a correct description, Morgan? Absolutely. In a lot of ways, we're, we're following centuries of indigenous practices in these landscapes and, and mimicking how, how nature functioned before uh, our current humanity was here. And uh, the controversy, and there is a lot of controversy, is over uh, whether you should uh, suppress fire, put it out every time you see it, use everything you can to put it out, or whether you should let it burn. Would you like to describe to us, either one of you, what are the dynamics of a fire and why a periodic controlled burn is superior to allowing an awful lot of fuel to build up in the forest? Well, you know, when you start with the premise that fire in most ecosystems across North America is an inevitability, then you can either have your fire as wildfire or you can control it uh, as prescribed fire. And given that inevitability in many fire-prone ecosystems, uh, a century of fire suppression has excluded uh, the natural role of fire 
uh, to reduce those fuels and to, to manage native ecosystems and has created a, a system that's very, very hard to get back into uh, a more natural and, um, and sustainable, resilient condition. Now, I've got a certain advantage here. I've been to Tall Timbers at its uh, facility in Georgia, in the Red Hills of Georgia, close to the uh, Florida border, and I have seen what you do. I have seen fires that have uh, a day old and areas that have been burned a year before, etc. Uh, would you like to explain what is the ideal frequency, uh, Morgan, between burns and how you establish when it is time to burn in a, an organized scientific way. Well, we use a lot of different um, ways to estimate what that, what that frequency is. Um, because we're prescribing it, we can say when we, when we burn the, the precise year or precise month or day, um, what we use is a, a, an amalgam of what the historic fire frequency was, where we use um, fire scars and trees, um, and we also use what the vegetation and the and the animal communities tell us if where their frequency matches um, the the prosperous um, nature of the individual species. And so, at at Tall Timbers, we're in the southeastern coastal plain that stretches from Texas to Virginia. the The fire frequency that works best tends to be between a year and five years. That's where the biodiversity is maximized and the threat of wildfire is minimized. Well, one of the feelings we all have is that fire destroys wildlife, that animals are burned to death or are forced from their habitat. What is the truth of the matter? Do they come back? Are they safe? Do you look out for them when you start a fire deliberately? When we use prescribed fire, certainly in the eastern United States, uh, one of the primary objectives is to, to sustain native wildlife, often endangered species. Um, yeah, at Eglin Air Force Base, we burned primarily for the federally endangered red cockaded woodpecker um, across the southeast, the, the federally threatened gopher tortoise uh, or indigo snake are all dependent upon the frequent fire that Morgan just talked about to sustain native ecosystems. And this is true up and down the, the, you know, the East Coast, but also uh, very true for many Western ecosystems, uh, particularly ponderosa pine. The problem for wildlife is that, that unfortunately, the fires that are burning in many of our, our Western ecosystems are, are just much larger and sort of more intense uh, and of higher severity than, than what much of that wildlife would have encountered in a different landscape you know, 200 or 2,000 years ago. And so the challenge for wildlife is to, to try to make sure that that fire uh, that we set with prescribed burning um, mimics the, the conditions that they evolved under or mimics a, a, a condition of heterogeneity across the landscape that they can respond to uh, in a resilient fashion. How can the lessons of lush Georgia be applied to uh, uh, barren areas of the American West, desert, semi-desert? and high desert. Well, in the, in the forested settings and by forest, including the sort of classical oak savannas of, of the Pacific West, um, frequent fire was definitely part of their past. Um, the tribes use fire quite a bit successfully. Um, they use it in a very different way than current wildfires um, burn, much like Kevin was mentioning. They burned in small 
um, units and they were very focused on the landscape. They're really nice examples of people bringing back fire to those landscapes. Now, many of those associated with indigenous communities in Northern California, Central Washington, where they're doing it successfully. Um, fire is, because you're applying it in a prescription, um, you can set the terms for when you want to ignite it, under what conditions. And um, the West almost, almost um, wholly has an extended dry period. So droughts there are long um, and they're definitely dangerous for, for fire. That tends to be when wildfires occur, but on the shoulders before that season begins and before the winters come, um, there offers a lot of opportunity for prescribed fire. This is not an easy problem uh, to solve and the prescribed fire um, while is, it will be part of the answer in many Western ecosystems, uh, there is a vast uh, part of the West that's experiencing, di experiencing a different problem. Uh, the invasion of non-native grasses uh, is taking some ecosystems like uh, sagebrush uh, and accelerating the amount of fire that they get. And so in that case, prescribed fire is not going to be the answer, trying to, to ensure that, that the the time in between repeated fires is sufficient to regenerate native plants like sagebrush uh, and sustain those ecosystems is the answer. And so, it, it you know, being able to say prescribed fire and more fire is is good will work in it, 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 you know at least conceptually in a lot of Western fire-prone ecosystems, but certainly not all. And I want to make sure that that everybody understands that that fire is a complicated factor that that does have to uh, be taken in consideration. Uh, not just in terms of long-term climate, but but in terms of what is increasingly novel species uh, that have come into those ecosystems and alter that fire regime. Thank you. Um, the U.S. Forest Service recently suspended prescribed burning because the fire had gotten out of control. Uh, is that a common occurrence? And what is the attitude of the Forest Service towards uh, prescribed burning? Yeah, it's a, it's a major um, a hiccup in this restoration of prescribed fire across the country. Um, proclamations like this, decisions to suspend um, or to pause prescribed fire happen at a state level. Um, it's not uncommon for um, a rash of wildfires to occur in an area or, um, you know, in the rare instance, you know, the less than 1% of the time when, when prescribed fires do escape. Um, having a pause to collect your thoughts, to have cooler heads prevail and look at a situation in a careful way is clearly important. Um, this pause that's nationwide is, while not unprecedented, is, is at a really difficult time for, um, for some of the changes that the Chief of the Forest Service and, in general, the nation have been really pushing uh, for how we manage fire-prone ecosystems. Kevin, describe to us the dynamics of a bird. Uh, when I visited your research center there in Georgia, I was impressed by how much was left behind by the fire, that it went through quickly. Uh, the impression we have is that fires raise everything, that every tree, every, every bit of nature is uh, burned up. But in fact, that's not the truth, is it? No, certainly not in a in a frequently burned ecosystem like a longleaf pine or some of the southern pine ecosystems that you walk through with tall timbers. I think it is important to recognize that that prescribed fire in maintaining ecosystems like 
uh, those that were present in the Southeast coastal plain behaves very differently. It's, it behaves the way that, that we would like to see it across much of the Western United States. However, uh, when, we, when we try to reintroduce prescribed fire to long unburned ecosystems, that's where we're most vulnerable. Uh, those ecosystems that have not had you know, fire through them, uh, they may have actually had thinning to reduce the fuel, still have a, an exceptionally large amount of smoldering material that doesn't allow the fire to move through quite as, as quickly and uh, you know what we used to call light burning uh, quickly and, uh, and, and with a low intensity um, uh, uh, impact on that ecosystem. And so those smoldering fuels that have accumulated over a century of fire exclusion in many ecosystems uh, don't allow that first fire to be quite as, uh, as, as low impact as what we see uh, in a system that's of maintenance. I tend to think of this in terms of a health analogy. Um, many of these forests in the Western United States are in the emergency room. Uh, the forest, uh, you know, that, that you walk through at tall timbers being frequently burned for for a hundred years, every year or two, is has had that preventative uh, care and is in a, a healthy state. And when we use prescribed fire in these, these long unburned ecosystems, we have to have the best available science and tools and technology to understand and uh, avoid some of the negative impacts um, that, that not only occur in, in the form of potential escape and safety uh, for firefighters, but also in the form of negative ecosystem consequences. Is it not a fact that the environmental movement has, by and large, not that you can say that it has a monolithic view, but has been uh, very hesitant about prescribed burning? A lot of the resistance in the Western United States to reintroducing prescribed fire um, was was driven by the environmental community. Concerns over smoke, concerns over this idea of an artificial um, and a very management-heavy, human-heavy um, approach. But I think with the, the greater recognition of um, indigenous peoples and their interrelationship with fire, vegetation, and landscapes, I think has come a long way. And, and really for us um, in the Southeast, as Kevin mentioned, we're burning for biodiversity reasons primarily. Um, the West has been really focused on using prescribed fire as a wildfire reduction tool. Um, and I think the more we approach and confront what are the biodiversity consequences of the fire, I think we continue to discover or rediscover in many cases um, just how intertwined the, the plants, animals, and fire are. And I think that's a powerful um, a powerful model that engages the environmental community in a productive way. Do you export your expertise? Are you advising governments and uh, state uh, organizations around the globe? Wildfire and, and prescribed fire and, and cultural use of fire is a global phenomenon. And Tall Timbers has the uh, the privilege of being a part of a much larger community, M many uh, many conservation organizations, governments that that fully understand the the need for good fire on their landscapes. Uh, so we are engaged uh, as part of that international group of scientists and managers to understand you know the role of fire in global ecosystems, particularly as we see uh, increasing impacts of fire, negative impacts in boreal forests, uh, in some of the organic soils. Uh, in, in the far northern reaches, as well as uh, as negative impacts of fire 
uh, most recently in the Amazonian rainforest. And so we want to understand the role the fire plays uh, as part of this international uh, earth system model and, uh, and certainly help uh, inform our own uh, science and, and management techniques by learning from others across the globe. What are the mechanics of a prescribed burn? How do you do it? What has to be in place? How do you gauge the weather, the wind? How, in fact, do you keep it prescribed and stop it from becoming a wildfire? The anatomy of a prescribed fire um, is basically pretty simple. Uh, most uh, burn units are, are you know, surrounded by a fuel type or a uh, break in the fuel that won't burn, uh, typically here in the, the southeast to be some sort of a road or a creek. And we light a fire on the downwind side of a unit. If you think of it as, as a big square, you know, it's the side where the wind is blowing towards. And that fire that we light creeps from that fuel break or the roadside edge slowly against the wind into the burn unit, removing all the fuel uh, between our fuel break and and uh, and further in, you know upwind into the unit. We call that a black line operation, uh, or sometimes a baseline. And establishing that is what allows us to then progressively move upwind and run fire with the wind towards that black line. And that's how most prescribed fires are done. There's a, a lot of variations on that theme, but you have to start up against an edge that won't burn. You have to secure the unit. The depth of that, that securing process will vary with the wind speed and the humidity, uh, the potential uh, of an ember you know, crossing a line and landing uh, in fuels downwind. But all of that is, is pretty typical. And it's, uh, it's practiced every day by private landowners, public uh, land managers, uh, as well as, uh, as, as um, tribal leaders and in, uh, indigenous cultures across, across the globe. But that, um, that process um, of establishing a safe burn window, when, when is it okay to burn that is actually a, an area of open science and one uh, that we're uh, trying to pursue with great speed with new tools and new technology, um, you know, as we try to, to make that that process much more predictable and, uh, and much safer in a, in a rapidly changing environment, both uh, with respect to climate, rainfall, and these novel species that I mentioned earlier. What is, what is the uh, area that you burn? Is it five acres? Is it a thousand acres? Is it 10,000 acres? What is the normal prescribed burn? And is there an ideal size for the burn? They vary from size to side, you know, across all the all that range. Um, and Morgan, jump in. I mean, you know, in the southeast, uh, the average prescribed fire is about forty acres. Um, when we were burning with the United States Air Force, uh, we averaged about a thousand acres and set fire with a helicopter dropping incendiary devices. Uh, the advent of drones and uh, and ignition devices with drones uh, allows us to to safely burn um, a much larger area. But the um, you know, typically what you try to do with a prescribed fire, certainly in the eastern United States, is, is complete it in a single day so that smoke management is, uh, is predictable, so that the forecast is solid. Um, in the western United States, where, where we've got much more complex topography, sometimes larger burn units, a multi-day uh, prescribed fire event is not uncommon um, and is, uh, you know, very dependent upon good weather forecasts and uh, a variety of, um, of ignition devices and techniques. Uh, how do you, uh, I wanted to get to ignition devices. How do you start the fire? 
You don't bend down with a box of matches and a few dry leaves, do you? Not as much anymore. Um, we, we range from uh, um, drones, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which are, are a, a very safe and effective way to, to set fire. They drop a, what is a small plastic sphere full of potassium permanganate. Uh, the, the machine injects just a little bit, little bit of ethylene glycol, starts an exothermic reaction, and, and by the time the, the little ping pong ball sized uh, plastic sphere hits the ground, it's, it's, it sets a small fire about the size of what a match uh, might do on, uh, on, on dry, dry grass. Um, typically, though, we ignite fires by hand with a drip torch. Uh, the drip torch is, um, uh, you know, has a, uh, a mixture of, of gas and diesel that's used to, to sort of slowly and methodically bring fire out uh, across a unit. Um, most of my career was spent uh, with a helicopter setting fire at a large scale. We could light almost a thousand acres an hour uh, with a helicopter uh, in order to be able to produce very large smoke columns, but ones that, that access the upper uh, reaches the atmosphere and, and disperse without hopefully Im impacting the public. But the range of ignition by devices is uh, is pretty amazing, and I'm very excited to to see the new drone technology. Just because it's so much safer than uh, than having uh, personnel in aircraft. Uh, that's very interesting. Drones are affecting so much of our lives. But tell me, when you uh, start a fire, do you have the local fire brigade standing by? Do you have all the normal things? And what time of day is optimum? Uh, if you have a small yard and you burn yard waste, uh, there are local ordinances which say burn it after four o'clock on X days. Don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, it's not uh, you're not free to just light up the garbage anytime you wish to do so or the yard waste. Uh, what are the limits on your burning? Prescribed fire is. Uh... It's pretty heavily regulated. Um, in the United States, there are 50 different approaches. Every state views it differently. Um, there are uh, standards for liability for the burner. There are standards for um, how the how the burn is permitted. Um, what that request looks like is it a daily request that you're calling in or logging in um, to some computer system to request, or is it um, a stack of paperwork that's approved? Um, it's fairly well regulated. Um, and in addition, the those igniters that Kevin was mentioning, those the skilled practitioners on the landscape that are applying fire are trained both as, as igniters, but also in fire suppression. And so if a fire um, did take a turn within the unit or, uh, or in the rare cases where it escapes, they're capable of then pouncing on that fire and suppressing it. Um, and and if it went any farther, the, a very close connection between the, the fire suppression community and the prescribed fire community. Um, I asked earlier about international fire suppression. Uh, are there lessons that we can learn from high fire areas? I think of the eucalyptus forests of Australia, for example. Are there lessons to be learned there that we can apply in the US? I think a lot. You know, tall Timbers, for for its 65-year um, history, has been engaged across the planet. Um, and working in the Mediterranean zone, whether that's in Portugal or Greece, um, 
we learn in an area that is very unforgiving. Um, we've all seen the the um, the camera uh, images of those places burning in really high intensity fires. Um, and I think the lesson there is really old human cultures that have been struggling with fire for some time. Um, and they, just like the United States and many other countries around the world, have come to realize that um, engaging with fire, with prescribed fire, using that as a tool to maintain those landscapes is, is really effective. In other areas, um, you know, the story gets more complicated because, as, just like Kevin was mentioning, um, climate change is making places that historically have not burned um, now become flammable. And the incursion of humans into those landscapes um, really makes a situation that are they're, they're truly novel. You know, the, the biggest lesson learned is that the story of human history is fire. And, and in areas where fire has been uninterrupted for, for thousands of years, whether it's portions of Australia, portions of Africa, uh, where you look at, at satellite detections of fire, and these are fire cultures, that those areas that understand their, they understand the role that fire is playing uh, and the variety of roles that it can play in their landscapes are the ones where we are not fighting major wildfires. That doesn't mean that they don't occur. That doesn't mean that there aren't problems uh, occasionally that pop up with fire use in those areas. But culturally understanding the role that fire plays in our fire prone ecosystems in our own backyards is, is something that we can learn from across the globe. And there are wonderful examples of, of it being used uh, by human cultures for human objectives that also benefit, you know, the resilience of those ecosystems and the and the wildlife that, that depend on them. Uh, Morgan, tell us in our final minute something about Tall Timbers. Is it a charity? Is it a government supported entity? Is it part of a university? What is it? Yeah, we're a, a non-governmental organization. Um, that is tightly, closely aligned with many federal agencies, state agencies, um, and many university partners. When you were here, I think you could see graduate students walking around, so it may have looked like a university, and then you may see a fire manager driving by in a, in a fire engine, and so it looks like a, uh, it looks like a federal land management agency. We're, um, we've been, for, since 1958, focused on uh, conserving biodiversity of the region, in addition to our research side, we're also a land conservancy, and so we've helped to to protect over 160,000 acres of, of conservation lands in the region. That's our show for today. I thank you both so much for coming along and for giving us this insight into the constructive approach to wildfires. Meanwhile, I'd like to change uh, the subject totally and go to this extraordinary matter of the Queen's Jubilee, here is my uh, tea towel, celebrating the fact that the Queen of England, Elizabeth II, has been on the throne for 70 years. In the next two weeks, you'll hear a lot about her. There's a huge parade scheduled in the UK, and there will be a special dessert, a Jubilee pudding, and I'm hoping to partake of that and to go down to licensed premises and raise a glass to the Queen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Queen. Cheers.